First chapter, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, starting at the 12th verse, where Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and more fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true motives, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. In just a moment, we're going to be talking about the bad things that happen to good people and God's creative use of those bad things. But before we do that, I have one side road I don't want you to miss. Please note the necessity of the Christian's defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 7b in our text for last week says, defending or confirming the gospel. In the 16th verse and the second part of it, Paul writes, I am put here for what? For the defense of the gospel. Norm Evans and I were speaking for the pro-athletes outreach all this week. Norm Evans was telling me about Monty Clark back in the days when Monty Clark was an active player on an NFL football team. He was a lineman, and he was a rookie, and he was having a lot of trouble, and the opposing lineman, when they started the first play, grabbed his helmet and pulled it down over his eyes, and he couldn't see, and he was trying to block, but he couldn't see anything. But he pushed his helmet back up for the second play, got down, and the opposing lineman did exactly the same thing. He grabbed his helmet and pulled it down over his eyes. During his first opportunity with the coach on the sidelines, Monty went to the coach, and he said, Coach, he keeps pulling my helmet down over my eyes. What should I do? And the coach smiled and said very simply, Don't let him do it. Don't let him do it. One of the great dangers, it seems to me, for Christians is that we interpret love in an insipid way that we begin to think that if we're really Christians, when people take Christ's name in vain, when they ridicule the Christian faith, when they stand against those things that we hold dear, what we ought to do is just smile and say, it's okay, I love you. Howard Hendricks says, the true measure of a man is not in what he accomplishes, but in what it takes to stop him. Say that again because it's important. The true measure of a man or a woman is not in what he or she accomplishes to make the statement less sexist, but in what it takes to stop him or her. What does it take to stop you from standing strong for Jesus Christ? What does it take you to cause you to be quiet about your faith in Christ? What is it that will cause you to back off? I think I've told you about my friend Walter Ralston who was an old man who taught me how to pray. And he stood before an ecclesiastical meeting one time, and he said, I want to see souls saved for Jesus Christ. And the people in this sophisticated theological assembly began to laugh at my friend Walter. And I was sitting on the back row, and I didn't laugh. But I didn't stand with him either. 
And I went home that night, and with much tears, I knelt down by my bed, and I said, God, never again will a brother stand by himself. If they laugh at one, they'll laugh at two, because I will be standing with him. And so far as I know, I've honored that promise for the last 16 years. What would it take to cause you to stop? Let me tell you something. The early Christians weren't liked very much, but they weren't quiet about their faith. And nobody laughed at them, and if they did laugh at them, they didn't laugh at them very long. Defending the gospel is our business. The next time a pagan says something that is dumb, tell him that it is dumb. The next time your atheist friend starts ridiculing your faith and saying you're obscurantist and that you are silly, tell him the Bible says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God, you're a fool, and I wish you would go to hell more quietly. Ladies and gentlemen, the point is we are called to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad the election is over. Are you? I thought if I saw one more political ad, heard one more comment, saw one more set of brothers fighting over the political campaign, I was going to die. It meant that I had to be very careful about the illustrations that I would use from the pulpit so that I did not engage in partisan politics. But the political campaign being over, I can use the following illustrations. David Gold, one of the talk masters in our city, a conservative one, called me last week and asked me if I would respond to two talk masters in this city. Both of them, he said, were atheists and homosexual who had said to the Jews that a vote for Reagan because of his connection with the new religious right was a vote for Jews to go back to the gas oven. I said, boy, would I like to respond to that. <laughs> boy, would I like to respond to that. So he called me last week, and on the air, I had an opportunity to say what I thought about that. Too often, most of us will back off. We'll say, I'm going to say anything. They are welcome to their opinions. No, they're not. I said on the David Gold Show that that's some of the silliest stuff that I'd ever heard in my life. I said that the new right held their views about Israel because of convictions. Jerry Falwell, whatever you think about him, is not an anti-Semite. Jerry Falwell is a friend of Menachem Begin. The National Council of Churches, when the gasoline got tight, began to support the Palestinian cause. You'll never find an evangelical. You'll never find a fundamentalist. You'll never find an Orthodox Christian doing that. Why is that? Because his views about Israel are based on convictions. You don't change your convictions when the gasoline gets short. And further, I said that if you're homosexual and if you're atheist, you ought to support the new religious right because it is that which gives us the basis of the freedoms that we have in this country. And if you're gay, you ought to move to Cuba and they'll throw you in jail. If you're homosexual, you ought to live in Russia. Man, you talk about not having rights, you don't have any. And the reason you don't have any is that you don't have a Christian base that says that every man is valuable, that every woman is important to God. Ladies and gentlemen, we need as Christians to stand up and be counted. And if the people in your office don't know that you're a Christian, tell them. People in your school don't know you're a Christian, let them know. If you're going to college and you have a superficial professor saying dumb things, tell him he's saying dumb things. You'll probably get bloody because of it, but do it. You see, in the first century, it was against the law to defend the gospel, and Paul ended up in jail. I wonder how many of us would end up in jail if it were against the law. 
I suspect that if we should go around the room this morning and, uh, and uh, get honest with one another, we'd find that almost everybody here is having something bad happening to them right now. As a pastor, you have been kind enough to allow me to see that in a lot of your lives. It's one of the great privileges of being a pastor is that people open the doors to their secrets sometimes. And I thank you for that and consider it a great compliment. But if we went around this room, some of you are going through very difficult temptations right now. and You're just hanging on by your fingernails. Some of you have friends who have turned against you because of your relationship with Christ. Some of you here are having marital problems that are just eating you alive. Some have kids who have turned away from the faith and turned away from you, and you don't know what to do about it. Some of you are going through acute financial problems, but I would suspect, with very few exceptions, if we went around this room, almost all of us would have a broken heart at one place or another. There is an unfortunate tendency among Christians to think that those things ought not happen to Christians. In fact, just a cursory glance at the shelves of the Christian bookstores in our nation will give you an idea that there are a lot of Christian writers who agree with you if you think those things shouldn't happen to you. You've heard the story about the physician who was at the pool in Jerusalem where the angel would trouble the water. And the physician wanted to be healed, and the legend said that the first person that got into the water when the water was troubled by the angel would be healed. And the physician stood on the side. When the water was troubled, he started to get in, and the angel prevented him. The angel said, without your wound, where would your power be? Without your wound, where would your power be? I don't know about you, but if I had the power and the sovereignty to make life perfectly copacetic for my children, I wouldn't do it. I mean, if I could plan their lives for them, and I would like to, they just won't let me. If I could plan their lives for them, ladies and gentlemen, and make sure that they never had to face tragedy, that they never had to suffer, that they never had to hurt, they never had to fall under temptation, they never had to sin, they never had to go through bad things, would I do it? And first I said, well, of course I would do it because I love. And then I think, if I really love them and they don't have any wounds, they won't have any power. Or if you want to pull it in Schuler-esque, without the pain, there can be no gain. I don't like that very much. <laughs> Uh, so we've got to go beyond cliches this morning, and I want to suggest that there are six points in this text, and I want you to hold in your mind the bad things that are happening or have happened to you, and we're going to see what Paul says, inspired by God's Spirit, about those things. Now, the first thing I want you to see in this text is the principle of commonality, to wit, bad things do happen to good people. Bad things do happen to good people. Philippians 1, 7b, whether I'm in change. Philippians 1, 13b, I'm in chains for Christ. Philippians 1, 14a, because of my change. Philippians 17b, while I am in chains. Now, if one believed much of the nonsense that is being perpetrated as theology today, one would say Paul ought not be in prison. I mean, he was a missionary, he was faithful to God. He could name it, frame it, claim it. He certainly didn't want to be in jail. And yet here you see the writer of much of the New Testament in jail facing the bad things that had happened to him. Now let me say something to you. Any theology, any philosophy that tells you that if you're good enough, bad things won't happen to you is silly. 
It's simply wishful thinking. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, and I have to say it to myself over and over again, the Christian faith isn't power without pressure. The Christian faith is not power without pressure. It is power under pressure. Brian Pallet tells about the time that David Lodge, who's the British novelist, had gone to a satirical play that he had helped write. Maybe you remember where you were when you heard that President Kennedy had been shot. I remember where I was. And if you ask people, almost everybody remembers where they were when they heard that. Well, this was an unusual situation. Lodge was sitting in the audience where this satirical performance was being made. And there was a scene in this performance where one of the actors, to show his nonchalance to what was going on around him, was listening to a transistor radio, and it was turned up very loud. It was the practice in this particular play that the transistor radio be tuned to a real live broadcast. In the midst of the satirical production, they broke in on to the particular broadcast and announced that the President of the United States had been shot. The actor tried to cut it off, but it was too late. The comedy had been interrupted by the tragedy. The comedy had been interrupted by the tragedy, and that can happen to you too. Every day the world rolls over on top of somebody who was just sitting on top of it, and as an outsider, you can't say what you think of the human race. It happens to you too, and it happens to good people and to Christians. A lot of evangelical believers believe in a doctrine called the rapture of the church. Now, I'm not here to criticize that doctrine. A lot of my brothers believe in it. A lot of my sisters hold it to be true. But it says that before the great tribulation takes place at the end of time, before the great tribulation takes place, those of us who are believers will be caught out of the earth. and We will be with Christ while all this bad stuff is going on on this earth. Corey Ten Boom said that she saw more tribulation in the world, she told me before she died, and the world now than is described in the book of Revelation. So if you believe in the rapture, believe it, but don't make it escapism. Let me re recommend a very good book to you, titled The Road Less Traveled. It's by Dr. M. Scott Peck. Now, that book is not a Christian book. He's a psychiatrist, and it's not one of those self-help, pull-your-own-strings books. It's a really good book. And between the writing of that book and his second book about the evil lie, he became a Christian. And you can see the seeds of him becoming a Christian in this first book. The book is called The Road Less Traveled. And if you've only been a Christian less than a year, don't read it. But if you've been Christian more than a year, then you have enough maturity to be able to separate the bad from the good. I found it a very helpful book to me. Now, let me give you a quote from that book that I've thought about a lot. The attempt to avoid legitimate suffering is the root of all emotional illness. Let me say it again. The attempt to avoid legitimate suffering is the root of all emotional illness. I have a friend who's gone through just a horrible time, and I love what she said to me. When I said, do you ever ask, why me? She said, no. I ask, why not me? This past week at the conference where I was speaking, had some time with uh, Al and Andy, Andrea, they call her Andy, uh, Egg. They had a 15-year-old daughter who was killed in an automobile recently, just before she turned 16. They were telling Anna and I about it, and, and I thought, man, I don't know if I could stand that. I mean, I believe I could almost stand anything, but if anything happened to my wife or my kid, just destroy me. They smiled, and they said, no, if you have to go through it, you'll go through it. 
God gives you the money for the passage just when you're getting ready to get on the train. And as I was around them for those three or four days and watched them, what a beautiful couple. What a magnificent faith. What a walk with Christ. Bad things do happen to good people, ladies and gentlemen. I love the opening of C.S. Lewis. Uh, if you haven't read the Seven Chronicles of Narnia, you ought to go out and you ought to get them the first time you can find a bookstore open, any bookstore. Chronicles of Narnia are the classic children's stories of C.S. Lewis. And in one of them, uh, it's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's a fella, a little boy in that story. His name is Eustace. And Eustace is a pain in the neck. I mean, Eustace is a bad, bad kid. He turns into a reptile, and uh, Aslan the lion has to rip his skin off of him because uh, he tries to take it off himself, and it won't come. And it really hurts, but it makes him clean. But Eustace, Eustace is really a bad kid. And C.S. Lewis opens the voyage of the Dawn Treader with these words. His name was Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he deserved it. <laughs> Can you think of anything in your life that causes you not to deserve the pain and the suffering that everybody else has to go through? Of course not. The difference between us and them is that we know we don't deserve anything any better. And so the first is the principle of commonality to wit, bad things do happen to good people. Isn't this awful? Stay with me. It's not going to get a whole lot better, but it'll get a little bit better. Secondly, I want you to see not only the principle of commonality, I want you to see the fact of control. Philippians 1, 12, now I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying there's a God who's sovereign over everything that is, and he has his parameters and his control over all the bad things that are going on right now. You know what I believe the most difficult thing is about being a Christian? It's not discipline. That's hard. I don't do it too good sometimes. That's hard, but that's not the most difficult thing about being a Christian. Holding up to temptation and being pure, that's hard too. Don't do that all the time. But I know how hard it is, but it's not the most difficult thing about being a Christian. You know the most difficult thing about being a Christian? Allowing God to be God. Letting go of the control in your life. You all know that I'm afraid of flying. Spend most of my life on airplanes. I hate them. And I always thought, because I, I would think about uh, you know, crashing and, and getting my blood all over the place, and what it would be like to be burned up. Jim Green says that when he goes through an airplane accident, he's going to be helping the other people. Well, see, he's the eternal optimist. When I go through an airplane accident, I'm going to be the people that people like Jim Green are going to be helping, and I'm going to have a leg over here and a hand over here and, and a head. And he used to think that was the thing that made me frightened of flying, but it isn't. You know what makes me frightened of flying? I'm not in control. You know why I don't like my wife driving the car? I'm not in control. You know, I don't like my daughters driving the car because I'm not in control. When I get on the airplane, I can't even see the pilot. I don't know what he's messing with the stewardess or south out of his mind up there. I don't know what he's doing. And my life is out of control. He's in control. You know, you know the reason that the Christian church reacted so harshly to the charismatic movement when it first came? I'm not charismatic in the sense that we define that today. In other words, I don't speak in tongues. But boy, when that first started happening in the church, started in the Zulu Street Revival that took place a lot of years ago, and then began to sweep across the church, you still see that hostility. Man, we told them it was either of the devil or the flesh. It certainly couldn't be of God. And we yelled at them, and we disciplined, and we did everything we could. You know why we did that? Let me tell you. Because we couldn't control it. 
And boy, pastors don't like something you can't control. People in this church are always talking about we're going to have a revival here. I don't want a revival here. You know the reason I don't want a revival here? Did I even start stuttering or start thinking about it? Can't control a revival. See, when God's Spirit begins to move in a church, you find out you can't hold on to it anymore. The issue is control. Harold Myra and Paul Robbins are the two chief executive officers of a group of magazines on which uh, I served the executive committee and the board of those magazines. They were down here, and we spent the morning together, and I've been wanting to ask them a question for a long time. They are so light when they're criticized. They're so open to criticism, and they really try to change when they are criticized. And I said to those guys at breakfast, I said, I've noticed that when the board jumps on you, you really try to do it differently. You don't seem to ever get uptight about this whole thing. Now, millions of dollars are coming in. A lot's resting on their shoulders. It's a very difficult position to be in. And you know what they both said almost simultaneously? They said this, we know that God gave it to us. It belongs to God. If he takes it tomorrow, it's cool. See, what they had done is they had given up control of those magazines. I think I told you about the time Sam Rowan called and asked us to pray for Sammy. Then he called the next day and said, Steve, God was faithful, Sammy's well. And then he said, long pause. And he said, you know, if God, uh, if Sammy had died, God would still be faithful, giving up control. You're willing to give up control to a sovereign God who loves you, control of your children, control of your business? Am I willing to give up control of this church? Are you willing to give up control of your wife or your husband, the constant manipulation, recognizing that in the midst of bad things, that God has his hand on the bad things, and he's in control. And then thirdly, not only do I want you to see the principle of commonality and the fact of control, please note also the necessity of communication, Philippians 1.13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. You ever notice how we reverse things from the way they ought to be in the church? I was talking to a, a wife of a ball player, major league ball player, placed for the Yankees. Uh, he and his wife were telling me about her father-in-law. said he won't go to church. And the reason he won't go to church is because he says there are a bunch of hypocrites in the church. He said they go to church and they pray on their knees on Sunday and on their neighbors the rest of the week, and I'm just not going down to that church. And they asked me what I should tell him. Well, I told them some things that they could say to her father and his father-in-law. But I got to thinking about it, and I thought about it. We really do reverse it. We're going to wear our best clothes. We wear them to church, don't we? And that's kind of symbolic of the way we are. We want to put on our best face here, and if we're going to sin, we're going to do it out there. I love John Powell's and uh, uh, five levels of communication. The first is cliche sharing, which is non-sharing. How you doing? Pretty day today. Uh, Doing wonderful. That means you don't share at all. But the second level of sharing is the level of fact. You share what you know. And the third level of sharing is opinion. You share what you think. And the fourth level is emotion. You share what you feel. And the fifth level is transparency when you share who you really are. This ought to be the place where we do that. Let me tell you something. If you're going to do something bad, do it here. If you're going to be a pain in the neck, don't do it out there. Do it here. I mean, if you're going to be narrow and negative and nauseating, don't go out there in front of the pagans and do it. Do it here among your brothers and sisters in Christ who already know that you're narrow and negative and nauseating. 
See, ladies and gentlemen, they are watching, and we are on stage, and we have a responsibility to them. Do you ever think that God can use the bad things that happen to you to demonstrate to your friends that you belong to Christ? That's what Paul is saying is happening here. Somebody said to me, and I agree because I've thought about it a lot since then, that there's a correlation between the bad things that happen to pagans and the bad things that happen to Christians. I believe every time a pagan gets cancer, a Christian gets cancer, so the world can tell the difference. I believe every time a pagan goes through a hard time in his life, a Christian goes through a hard time in his life, so that the world can see the difference. People are watching. One of the reasons that I'm still walking with the Lord is because of Dr. John Stanton my mentor in the faith. And I've told you about him a lot. I get more illustrations from him. He's been dead for almost 12 years now. I get more illustrations from him than I can tell you. When he was 60 years of age, big Westmont Presbyterian Church in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, known throughout the denomination as one of the high mucky mucks, he collapsed in his pulpit. Loved preaching, collapsed in his pulpit. And his physician said, Dr. Stanton, that is the last time you will ever preach. And he moved to Cape Cod. And I had an opportunity to watch a man who had had the greatest tragedy you can imagine happen to him. A man who lived to teach God's word was told he would never do it again. And I saw his love and his compassion and his faithfulness, the way he never spoke of it, the way he never whined, the way he never complained. And I didn't know the Lord in those days, but I knew that Dr. Stanton knew the Lord. And that was quite helpful. And then... Fourthly, not only do I want you to note the principle of commonality, the fact of control, the necessity of communication, please note also the reality of community. Philippians 1.14, because of my chains, most of the brothers and the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Philippians 1.16, the latter preach Christ in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. In other words, we're part of a community. We're part of one another, and we are to encourage one another. Somebody said recently the difference between Mustangs and mules when the wolves attack is that the Mustangs all get in a circle, a protective circle, with their heads in, and they kick those suckers to death. The difference between mules and Mustangs is that when the mules are attacked by wolves, they get in a circle too, but they get heads out. And they kick one another to death. That can happen in the church. Remember in Rocky, when, uh, when the brother, uh, when Rocky was in love with whoever that girl was in the movie, and, and uh, her brother was asking Rocky why Rocky loved his sister, and Rocky said, gaps. Gaps. We fill each other's gaps. I want more than anything in the world to be honest before the people to whom God has sent me to teach. I want to tell you when I blow it. I want to tell you when I'm having a tough time. I want to tell you when I fail. I'm not going to be specific every time, but I want to be as honest as I possibly can, remembering the propriety of the pulpit, as I possibly can about my life. But I also want to be honest with you when I succeed. I want you to pray for me when I fail, and I want you to be encouraged in your walk with Christ when I'm walking faithfully with Christ, because we are called to fill each other's gaps. Past week, I sat at dinner with two uh, major league, uh, well, they were, they were in a farm league in Salt Lake City, two young men uh, who uh, play in Salt Lake City. Uh, they're in the Seattle franchise uh, team. Athletes are, are sometimes just childlike in their love of God, and I don't know why that is. 
maybe that's why I'm such a pain, is that I'm not good at athletics. But at any rate, we sat at dinner, and these two guys were talking about their testimony and how they'd come to know Christ. And one was black and one was white. And they talked about this last season and what God had done to bring the Christians together on the team. And then they began to laugh and tell stories about God's faithfulness in their lives and what their team members said. And then they looked at each other, and you knew they loved each other. And they were grinning, and I grinned inside. You know why? Because I was encouraged by their faithfulness. When friends by shame are undefiled, Paul Stuckey said, how can I keep from singing? And then fifth, not only do I want you to note the principle of commonality, the fact of control, the necessity of communication, the reality of community, I want you to see the miracle of conversion, Philippians 1.15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill, Philippians 1, excuse me, 17 through 18, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambitions, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. I've given up tennis because uh, uh, I just can't play that game. I thought I played it. My friend said I didn't. I've also given up golf, almost. I play once about every two or three months. I thought I played golf. My friend said that I didn't. I heard somebody say this last week that they didn't like golf, but they loved to cut. And uh, it provided a marvelous opportunity. <laughs> I may take both of those up uh, again anyway. But one of the things that I was beginning to learn about tennis is that when your opponent puts English on the ball, you can keep the English going the same way and reverse it against him so that his own English kills him. Now, what Paul is saying here is that that's what God does for all the bad things that happen. You remember in the 50th chapter of Genesis when Joseph had been, you remember, he had been sold into slavery. Uh, they'd gone, told his daddy that he was killed by some wild animals. And the years passed by, and Joseph ended up one of the high mucky mucks under Pharaoh in Egypt. And there was a famine in the land, and then the guys that did it unto him got it done unto them. When they came to Joseph, and it was their own brother. They discovered, you know, this is the guy we saw. We're in bad trouble. Remember what Joseph said in the 50th chapter of Genesis? He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And then over in the 45th chapter, when they first discovered, he says, be cool. That's from the original Hebrew. He says, be cool. He said, you didn't put me here. God put me here. Every evil thing that's going on, every bad thing in your life, every person who hates you because your relationship with Christ, every hurt through which you go, every broken heart in this place, God is going to put the English on and reverse it because Romans 8, 28 is true. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The miracle of conversion, the converting of the evil when it was meant for evil to the good. Then finally, and I'm going to talk a little bit faster, not only do I want you to see the principle of commonality, the fact of control, the necessity of communication, the reality of community, and the miracle of conversion, please note also the result of contentment. Philippians 1, 18a. I love this, but what does it matter? Big deal. Philippians 1, 18c, and because of this, I rejoice. You know what gives me the greatest contentment? When I've done everything I can do, and I can't do any more, and I give it over to God and say, whatever he does, that is okay. I love Paul's comment. He's in jail. People are trying to get him by reaching out, preaching out of ambition. He's hurting. 
He knows that he may die from this particular trip to jail. And he says, but what does it matter? What does it matter? Jenny Lind uh, married, if you're familiar with her life, a man by the name of Goldschmidt. And he did what he said ought to happen to her. When he heard her sing the first time, somebody asked him what he thought about her singing. He said, it's rather harsh. And then he said this, but if I could marry that woman, break her heart, and crush her feelings, then he would sing. That's what he did. Have you learned how to sing? You can't learn how to sing until you've gone through the tragedy. You can't get to the resurrection until you go through the cross. The process in which you are engaged right now is God's process. Get to the point where he says, say, what does it matter? I haven't told you much this morning that helps. I would have preferred to tell you that there's a magic wand in the Bible and you can wave it over your head three times and all the tragedy goes away. I wish I could say that, but I can't. It's not true. Haven't helped much in the sense that I said that all tragedy and all hurt is dissipated because it simply doesn't work that way. I'm reminded of the speaker who said to a conference where he was speaking, you think that I have come here to help you. I haven't. I've come here to bind up your wounds and to prepare you for the next battle. That's true. But remember that someday the battle will be over. All the hurt and the evil and the problems will be seen in the light of eternity. And then we will know for sure that it really doesn't matter. You think about that. Amen. Thanks for listening. And in case you didn't know, you can connect with Key Life on social media through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thank you.